Well, good morning. How are you? Good. For those of you who don't know, my name is Rick Strasner. I'm the Director of Worship and Students here at CC. Uh, if you're new with us today, I would ask you guys to all take out your Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 1. Uh, if you do not have a Bible under the seat in front of you, there should be a hardback black one for you. And if, for those of you that are just catching up with us today, we started this series called Prophet and Gospel, where every week we take one prophet, one of the minor prophets from the Old Testament, and we're, they're not minor because, I want to start with this, it's not minor because they're like less important. I think we've kind of made that known, but they're not minor because they're less important, but primarily because if you were to take the book, like we're going to be in today, Hosea, and read it, you could sit and read it in one sitting, but also because the context of the book is something that's manageable to like one argument, one concept, one locus. So by way of recap, prophet is a man called by God. He speaks God's words. He speaks the truth of God. And the reason God gifts us with prophets is because we are finite and we are ignorant of truth. We are finite and ignorant of truth. This is the infinite God who speaks to finite minds because we no longer know how to hear, how to discern truth. So God gifts us with these prophets, speaking truth to us once again. So that's a prophet. That's what we're dealing with today. And then here's the second piece of the series, gospel, which most of us know is good news. And this is crazy because as we saw when Jay preached on Malachi and as we got into Micah, when you open that book up, when we open up Hosea today, you're going to look at this and you're going to think, you're going to see judgment, you're going to see death, you're going to see enslavement, and you're going to be like, where in the world is there good news? How in the world is judgment and enslavement and all these things good news? So in the Gospels, in these minor prophets, in the study that we are doing, Scripture actually tells us that all the law and the prophets are really about him. They're really pointing to finding their fulfillment in Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, it's one of the great Christological passages, one of the great Christological books. It says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So where prophets speak on behalf of God, we are gifted with Jesus, who is God the Son speaking as God. And one of the things we noticed as well in these books is that, um, and you're going to hear it today, so if you don't, like I've even talked to some people this week, like you, you didn't even know there was a book called Hosea, um, and that's okay, but I want to like warn you because every one of these minor prophets, God uses this high intensity language to begin to characterize not only who he is, but what is the state of his people. 
It's high-intensity language. If you're not ready for it, especially as we get into Hosea, um, I just want to warn that with you here. So let's begin reading Hosea chapter 1 and read with me here, okay? The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And in the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now. Whew. Now, some people have accused me this week of, uh, the only reason you wanted to preach Hosea is because you got to say whore in church like 50 times. Um, and I counted, it's only 17. Uh, but I was like, yes, I get to, all right, moving on. We're not going to go there. Um, Hosea, just to give you a little bit of a, just a quick summary. Hosea is, so he's this man called by God to take a woman of whoredom, a woman who would not be faithful to him, but, he, but had this lust and desire that kept drawing her away. She would be somebody who says, I don't know how to be yours, God. Hosea marries Gomer. They have children. His wife is not faithful but prostitutes herself out and returns to her life of prostitution. And Hosea then is told by God, you need to go back and you need to call her. You need to woo her. You need to redeem her out of it. And so here's the deal. Um, Hosea is more than just this so-called object lesson. Because what you see in chapter 1 is that he not only pronounces this judgment, if you go back to verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Because, because why? The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. But by the time you get down 
uh, to verse 10, we begin already from the beginning to see gospel language. We begin to see gospel language of even though I'm not going to forgive, even though I'm, I'm not going to call them my people because they are not my people, in verse 10, he already goes there from the beginning to see in verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea and they cannot be measured. He's more than an object lesson. What God begins to do through Hosea is not just put words on the mouth of Hosea, but he uses the whole person of Hosea, the whole life to image the infinite, perfect, blameless God who marries himself to a polluted, wicked, sinful people. God gives us the whole redemptive picture from the beginning. Scripture tells us he chooses us in him before the foundation of the world. There will be a fall, but he will bring redemption and restoration. Hosea imaging God. He's imaging God here. Gomer is over here imaging us, these people, this this people of God, and I say us, and I'll tell you why I say us in just a second. He knowingly, Hosea is knowingly taking this wife. He tells him from the beginning what she is like and what she's going to be. This is the image of God before us. He did not create us, set us in there, and then when we fell into, walked into, and, and specifically here, chose sin, God did not freak out and be like, what's going on? What just happened? He does not do that. He knows what he is getting. And what's interesting here, as we have all seen, I'm getting to say whore in church 50 times today, God articulates that the most appropriate way to describe and to characterize his people in this context, in this book, is to identify them as prostitutes. The people of God are not like prostitutes, but are in the character of their hearts and in the fruit of their actions, a people who sell their bodies and sell their minds and their desires to other gods, people, and things. And the other thing before we go on here is, I, want, I wanted this to be clear, that this is not forgetfulness. This is not, um, this is not like wilderness where like, God just got them through the sea and he rescued them. He did all these miraculous, crazy things. And then like five seconds later, they're like, well, how are you going to feed us? And how are we going to drink? And where are we going to sleep? It's not forgetfulness. He is saying here explicitly, God's characterization of his people is explicitly not that we are forgetful. Not that these people are forgetful. They know who he is, but they don't know him. They know what he said they know what he promised, they know his laws, they know what he requires, and they intentionally leave God to scratch some itch, right? To chase some desire, some lust. And this is not forgetfulness, this is prostitution. God carefully chooses this word and this idea. Not that it's like this, it is this. And interestingly enough, we don't have a ton of time to go into this, but it's important as we go forward as well. The offspring. He names his kids. How terrible is that? It sounds like, right? Like you would never, people that are about to have babies in the room, like you're not going to name your kid no mercy or not my people or ugly. You're not going to name your kid ugly. 
Um, but this is important because it, 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 I've heard people say this is a contradiction. It's not. Because you name them no mercy and then God has mercy. You name them not my people and every effort he has is to make them a people. There is vengeance, Jezreel, right? But then there is the vengeance that's taken out on sin. So what we see in these children is both the necessity of God to deal with sin and when he chooses to save, he must do it. This is what we see in these kids. The fruit of the relationship of God and his people is both judgment and salvation in him. Both judgment and salvation exist in the same space. And a lot of times we try, especially the church, to get rid of that. They both exist necessarily in the same space. So God charges his people, right? Like we see throughout the book of Hosea, God charges people. God asks the question, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Like Hosea is ministering right now, right, in the northern province. And then in the southern province, you have... uh, at the same time, around the same time, you have Micah, which we just talked about last week, and you have uh, uh, Isaiah ministering down there in the same place. And so he says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, dew that goes away. See, the, the love of, God, of, of God's people is there, but it's just fleeting. He says, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God. There's swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself, and in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. They are rebels. They have great iniquity, great hatred. My people are bent on turning away from me. Now, here's here's the deal of it, is that we are tempted to read those things. And yes, it is about God's people at that specific time. But just in case we're tempted to relegate these things just to the people of God at that time, Hosea gives us chapter 6. So if you turn to chapter 6 with me real quick. In chapter 6, we have a call to come to return to the Lord. But if you look down in verse 6, he says, this is what I desire from you. This is what I want for my people. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Just in case we're tempted to think that God's just mad at them for this moment, they pull up Adam. Whatever this sin is goes all the way back to Adam, right? So in, in, in Genesis, we see there's the garden, there's perfection. God gives them this instruction that you are to only eat of of all the other trees except for this one that's in the midst of the garden. There's this fruit that you cannot eat. The serpent comes, right, and deceives Eve. And then Adam, like a jerk, is standing right there looking on, and then he lets his wife eat it. He eats it himself. He sins. He transgresses 
the law, but in chapter 3, you get this, you get a covenant made. You get this covenant made, because what did they say would happen? Y'all tell me, play with me today. What would happen if they eat the fruit? What was, what was going to happen? You will surely die. That is what will happen. But what happens? They don't die right there. They get to go on living. So is God lying or what's he doing there? He's covenanting because what he goes on and does, even though God God covenants with man, he says they will surely die, but God postpones the death of Adam, right? And he creates this, there's this enmity now, hostility between mankind and the rest of creation, between God's good creation and there's this sin that has entered it. God promises woman what? He promises that they will go on living There's going to be work, right? There's going to be toil. You're going to have food, but it's going to be toilsome. But also, he says, you're going to have children. This isn't wiping. This surely dies, not wiping out creation. It's not wiping out people. He's actually covenanting here. And he says, you will go on living. And the most Christological part of this, he says, God also promises that the head of the serpent would ultimately be crushed. But the man who would do it would get hurt in the process. So whatever this pollution is that Hosea is talking about, this isn't just relegated to this moment. It goes all the way back to Adam. Genesis 6.5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this whoredom, this prostitution by God's people where Adam, acting as our federal head, commits sin And we inherit this pollution, this imputed guilt, this pollution in Hosea is something that affects all of humanity. So all these charges that he listed out is is not just relegated to that. It is something we all have to deal with, will deal with, and God must deal with. So let me ask you some questions here. Let's take on and own. Let's just own some of this prostitution. How often is this us? I just want you to, you don't have to yell it out loud. You can, but that would be weird. Uh, how often is this us? How often is our love of God there, but so fleeting? How often is there no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God? How often, how often among us is there swearing, lying, hatefulness, murder, stealing, and committing adultery? How often here do we cherish the desires, images, goals, and people that seduce our minds and bodies away from him? How often is it that the more we're called, the more we run away? And how much time and attention do we give to our lust for a lifestyle, for a goal, an object, a person? How often do we set up our own little kingdoms, and we put these leaders in place and influencers that we follow, but even lifestyles. Have y'all seen this? Um, I've seen it a little bit growing up around here in the area, but like y'all know in these new build home communities, they actually have, I don't live in a neighborhood like this, but they actually have houses that look like castles. Have you seen that? Dude, like, like, I don't know if anybody has that kind of house in here, but dude, like all you're missing is like a moat and a drawbridge, and like a couple alligator in your two square feet of yard. <laughs> How often, though, have we claimed that our riches come by our own labor and efforts, and that there is no sin in our obsessive attention to career and lifestyle? 
How often would we better be identified as rebels? How much of our lives are bent on turning away from the Lord? But let's do this together as a family, okay? Kerry Newhoff has this, uh, what he calls the idol of more. Let's look at this as a church real quick. How often do we worship the idol as a church of more? If we just had more people, more energy, more money, more building, more lights, more liturgy, more freedom, more order, more strategy, more programs, more of a youth presence, more community groups, better online presence, more skinny jeans on stage, ugh, no, more talent, more whatever, then, then if we look like that church down the road, then we can call ourselves successful and alive and flourishing, right? Our collective heart can end up lusting after churches that look like they have it all together. What about this? Uh, how often as a church do we worship our current traditions and church structure? How often are we unwilling to go where the Lord leads when he says go, even if it means giving up positions, strategies, and personal preferences in order to be wholly obedient to him? And yet, God knows all of this about us. It sounds bad, because it is. And he knows the worst about us and commits himself to us anyway. Scripture says, out of Hosea chapter 2, he says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and not my Baal, my Baal. I will make for them a covenant. And if you look at 2.18, there's a lot of creation language in there. He says in 2.19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Not just know about him, not just know what he says, but you will know me. So, how does he affect this? How does he bring this out, bring this to bear? Two things must happen here, okay? Number one, just like with these children, there must be both judgment, right? And he chooses salvation. Both happen in the same space. Two things must happen. Number one, God must deal with sin. And this is important because a lot of times we get this wrong. He cannot simply overlook sin. There's a lot of churches today, I'm not going to try and bang on churches, but there are churches today teaching us that God can relax his law somehow or sweep it under a rug a little bit or something like that. God cannot, without denying himself, simply overlook or sweep sin away. He cannot relax his own law. So in chapter 2, 2 and 3, as you, I know some of you guys have been looking at, he, he pleads. He says that, please, that she should put away her whoring from her face, lest I strip her naked. He must do it. And make her like a parched land and kill her thirst. God intends, because of sin, to starve it out. He must do it. He must destroy sin. And there's a redemptive purpose in God pronouncing judgment on his people to wake us up, to be whole persons. Like, like he uses the whole person of Hosea, right? To wake us up, to be whole persons, to be a whole people, to be brought to God. He uses the whole person. To do this, he uses the whole person of Jesus to do this. So 
whatever God's going to do in us, he's trying to make us understand you can't make you whole. I don't care how many lusts you chase or desires and goals and this and that and the other where you just put God like he's one of them. That's why he says, you're going to call me my husband, not my Baal. That's the same thing as all these other pursuits and God's one of my pursuits of all the pursuits that I have. He is not the pursuit and everything else is everything else. Everything else falls under that. And number two, so, if, so God must deal with sin, but number two, if God chooses to save, if we are to be saved, he must affect it. He must bring it about. So if you go back to chapter one, Hosea chapter one, verse seven, if you look at that with me real quick, he says, I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or war or horses or horsemen. If God's going to do it, he does it. It's not going to be some man-made, earthly, whatever that will save you. It must be him. He must do it. So who does he send? Who does, how does God do this? He, God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus Christ. Remember, all the law and the prophets are really pointing this way. They really find their fulfillment and their summation, their consummation in him. Jesus comes not speaking on behalf of God. He speaks as God. Jesus is God the Son. God the Son chooses to add humanity to himself and to live and walk among his people. Jesus would look out, right, on all the sickness, all the depravity, all the prostitution, and in love, mercy, and kindness, heal his people. We are the, we are the woman at his feet, that if we could just reach out and touch the robe of Jesus, we would be healed. We would be clean. Jesus comes and he walks among the dirty and the prostitutes and he heals them. He eats with them. He proclaims to them the good news of the kingdom, gives them hope of future, forgives people of their sins, and prays to God on behalf of his people. And he does it this way. Jesus would then be put to death on the cross as though Jesus was the whore. Jesus would take onto himself every bit of wrath, every bit of the wrath of God that you and I could no longer, so that you and I would no longer be identified as a whore, but as righteous, as clean. Jesus redeems us, commits himself to us. It is the marriage of God to his people that he affects. And I love it. I love this quote from Bonhoeffer. He, he wrote this in a wedding sermon, uh, and it applies literally to these two people, but he connects it to God in relationship with us. And he says, it is not your love that sustains this marriage. But from now on, it's this marriage which sustains your love. Jesus is God's final yes to you in this relationship. All the while knowing the absolute worst about you. It's it's God's yes to us as a people, knowing that we turn from him, knowing that we cheat on him, knowing that we will act like this is some some kind of open relationship It's not your love of God 
that makes this thing work, but his steadfast love for you that makes this relationship work. So this relationship is not, uh, this is not an open relationship. As John Owen puts it, God lays hold by his word and judgments on some sin in us, right? God exasperates, he aggravates our conscience, right? When we know there's something wrong with us, he aggravates our conscience, disquiets our heart, deprives us of rest with the purpose being to awake the whole man that he might be brought to God. So today, if you're uh, an unbeliever, you've been wrestling with this. If you don't know Christ, but he's stirring your heart toward him, all that's left for you is to stop running. He's decided that you are included in his people. So confess today. We're going to have, in a little bit, we're going to have people here to pray with you. I'm here to pray with you. Uh, Confess where you've been giving your mind and your body and your soul away to other things and people. For those of us that are believers, the people of God, there is a call for God's people to stop prostituting themselves out. In chapter 6, if you remember that passage, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He, ha- he has struck us down, and he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. This is gospel language. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Church, if we are straying far away and we, we must return to him, he's called us, and not harshly, but he's wooing us. He is speaking betrothal language to us. God himself has torn us. He must do some soul wrecking in us. And that same God will heal us. It's his purpose in wrecking us. Our being struck down comes in Christ. This third day he rises and we rise with him. He was struck down and raised to life that we may have life in him. We do not get healed by giving in to our lusts and our adultery. We have got to die in order to live. So what do we do? Here's what we do. Romans 8, 12, and 13 says, Brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. This all happens in the Spirit. We do not owe anything whatsoever to our polluted, corrupted nature. Now we know our outward deeds, they flow from what's going on inside us, but what's going on inside us apart from Christ is this inward pollution. And, you, and we think, like, like, like you and I do the same thing, but you think that by chasing some lust, some desire, some dream, and you, didn't, you don't even include God in on it. You think that this is somehow gonna make you happy You don't owe anything to that. I don't owe anything to make me happy. Living in step with our polluted desires and acting on them is actually killing us, y'all. So what we must do is we must take lives. 
These polluted, corrupt, adulterous desires and actions have to die. You and I must take lives here. We must starve out in the power of the Holy Spirit those things that we are lusting after and driven toward that we feed and we enable to exist and then we run around wondering like, God, what's going on? Why aren't you here? He's like, I am here, but you don't pay attention to me. You don't consider me. You prostitute yourself out. You've already sold your mind out to something. You've already sold your body out to something. We must take lives here and not in moderation. Like we, we do this all the time, right? Who in here drinks? Nobody raises their hand because y'all don't want to lie in church, right? Um, we, say, we typically think of moderation for that, but when it comes to these things, like, man, if it's your job that's, that you lust after, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's some crazy dream, maybe it's another person. We tend to tell ourselves, it's fine, it'll be okay, as long as it's in moderation, as long as it's in, no. These lusts are not desires and people and things that we need to simply take in moderation. We must starve out every longing in our heart in the power of the Holy Spirit that is given over to someone or something other than God. Guys, we all have to go to work, but work was given to us by God. In creation, right? There was, there was work before the fall. Your work, your title, your salary, your task list is a gift to you, not an open relationship for you to have God when it suits you and indulge in a secret affair of love and devotion and worship with something else. Whether it's our money, our lifestyle, the way we parent our kids, and we call it good parenting. Maybe I indulged in my kids way too much, but without giving them a view of God. It's not moderation. Some of this has got to die. And if it's left up to you and me, we will never do it. We'd be content to believe that we can have a secret affair against God and that either he won't find out or he notices us from afar, but he's just going to keep quiet. God is not far. He has been brought near by Jesus Christ. That was proof. And then Jesus does what? When he ascends into heaven, he gives us the spirit. He is with us. He is among us. He is in us. It is not a secret affair, friends. You are not hidden in whatever you're doing. He knows. And he has promised. He has promised gospel to you. Our Father's sending of the Son was a roar in and over through all creation to take, take the life of sin and death and put them to death. And the same Son takes an adulterous people and commits himself to them for eternity where there is no death to part them. And there is now no condemnation or death that can now separate this bride from the groom. God, this is God's yes. Jesus is God's yes to you and me in sending his son. So in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And I just right now, I just want everybody, bow, every head bowed, every eye closed. And I just want to ask just a couple of questions.
You see, I, I think that we need to, to admit and, and just lay our whole selves before the Lord right now. Let there be no secret place in your heart. Let there be no secret place in your life. And if you feel pent up, would you just pray in the spirit, God, open me up. I don't want, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of acting like this is an open relationship where you have given me everything, everything I need. So here's, here's some questions. As we meditate, as we think and we pray, who are you selling your mind, your body, your strength, and your desires to? Where, if you're honest, right, where are you prostituting yourself out right now? As a church, where are we prostituting ourselves out? What needs to die today? We don't do this, we don't do this a lot around here, but with every head bowed and every eye closed, man, if, if you're in that place where you would say, God, I, I don't know how to be yours and belong to you and other, would you just slip up a hand so I can pray for you? If you're saying, God, I don't know how to be yours, thank you. I don't know how to be yours. You who are once far off and your sins have been brought near to God. Just tell him, I don't know how to be yours completely. But you are not left in the filth of your sin and made to eat outside. You are welcome to the table. Let me ask another question. And again, we don't do this a lot here, but I just want to pray over you. Are you struggling to believe today? Is there anybody here struggling to believe today the reality of Jesus that, that he knows the worst about you, but he is not walking out on you? Whether you love him or hate him, you bear his mark on you. Where are you believing you're too filthy, too deep in sin to be loved intimately by God? Are you struggling today to believe that he's not walking out on you? That he's not going anywhere. I'll leave you with this. It's the word of the Lord. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you, and the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior.